So the roundtable question, which we will be inviting you to participate in here. Who are your people? Who do you turn to in a moment of stress? Who is your community and why are they your community? So I know for myself, just to lead things off, I know that my wife is definitely my biggest people, um, especially in a moment of stress. I go to Karina. Now my people beyond that, which I guess could be my community, but maybe you see those as separate questions or separate statements, your people versus your community. That would be interesting. I'd love to hear about that. I know I've got a couple of good friends that I also will uh, talk to. And uh, if I'm in a moment of stress or a moment of questioning, I dump on them very often. And probably why them is that they don't give me answers. I mean, they might eventually give me suggestions, but they certainly don't judge me. And they certainly don't tell me that I'm wrong for whatever it is. They accept what I'm giving as being the way it is. And then they let me be me. So I know that for me, that is very important. So how about you? If you've got an answer to this, how about you unmute yourself? And uh, I think Taryn is gonna be switching people around today. We'd love to hear from you. I think that my community um, has gotten quite small in the last in the last few um, years. Uh, being empty nesters, um, I didn't realize how much my daughter was a part of my community until she left and got married, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that was a bit of a blow. Um, so, really finding that I'm in a period of real readjustment and figuring out who my people are. Also, having kind of left our long-term church. Though sadly, I don't, I don't think that very many of the people that I attended church with were really and truly my people, um, because there weren't necessarily people I go to in times of stress. But I have, like you, Josh, I have a couple of good friends, um, and I have a couple of, gratefully, a couple of good work friends. But also, like you, number one person is my husband. Mm. Uh, he gets it <laughs> every time, and, and sits here and goes. I don't know what to say, but I know he loves me. So he, he just puts up with me. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, good it question. is one. It's, it's a good question. Those are good questions. And they really resonate with me this week because I've had a very stressful week. So I uh, really looking for my people this week. So it's mm, good to hear. Yeah. I hope you found them. I hope they were available. Enough of them were. There you go. Anybody else? Thank you. I'll respond um, not for myself, but for uh, out of a conversation I had this week with someone. Um, and I don't think they would necessarily call themselves a Christian, um, but um, we were talking about suffering and grief and she mentioned that shortly after she had had um, her baby, her dad suddenly died um, very unexpectedly. And 
she said how it just exposed how many fair weather friends she had. And we use that, um, that language, um, but it really seemed poignant in this particular situation. And she said, people just didn't, they didn't want to come around. They didn't know what to do. Um, they definitely did not want to hear her talk about um, how sad she was about her dad passing. And she found out that the people she thought were her people weren't her people um, because they couldn't come near her in that, in that place. And, um, and the people, and there were people who she was surprised by who did come close and have become a resource for her in times of stress. So it's interesting because um, we can think we're surrounded and not be, or we can think we don't have anyone. And we actually have people there who come out of the woodwork when things are tough. So just some thoughts. Yeah, you know, I would echo that too. And, and Laurie said the same thing. We had the same experience. You, you think you have your people and then you all of a sudden need them and you all of a sudden realize, oh, not quite those kind of people, rats. And sometimes it's a lot heavier a feeling than rats. Anyone else? Your people, your community. I can uh, hop in real quick here, just kind of based off of what other people were sharing. It got me thinking, um, once again, not so much for me, but helping other people process who their people are. Um, in the last few weeks, I feel like I've had a lot of my queer friends uh, working on like coming out, whether it's to family members or to friends, completely public, whatever. Um, and there's been a lot of people who are kind of processing the reality that they've come out to people that they thought were close in their life. And now they suddenly aren't so close, um, whether that's explicitly or just over time, they drift away. Um, but yeah, I think it's so interesting to hop on that train of sometimes, yeah, fair weather friends. And when you all think the same way, you can all be each other's people. But as soon as like one key element shifts, uh, there's that shift. Um, but I also, um, I don't know if people have seen the comment uh, in the chat yet, where it's turning to people is actually quite difficult for me. So often it's my therapist as my first responder or processor. Um, and I really relate to that, um, especially, yeah, there was a season of life where I'd be like making a mental note, not a physical note, but a mental note being like, I need to process this in a few days at my next session. And I think for a while, that's also very much how I functioned. And my counselor would have been one of my, ther or my, one of my people in a way. Um, so I, I relate to that comment. That's good. Anyone else want a chance? <clears throat> All right, well, here. Okay, well, we are going to move on. I believe we're moving, yes we are, to communion with Eden.
Well, I did try to do this several times ahead of time so that I could move to my notes immediately. And now for some reason, um, I can't see them. Please just bear with me for a moment. Um, okay, I might have to pull it up on my phone. Uh, it's not there either. Um, Sarah, help me. If you um, if you hit escape, you'll go out of full screen, and then you might be able to find what you're looking for. I am I am out of my screen, um, and I think it's behind. Ah, uh, got it. Thank you, Sarah. All right. Um, so, you know, Sarah and I had a conversation this week about um, what she was going to talk on about this this morning, and I, it really resonated with me and what I wanted to do with communion. So, you know, this has been a really tough week. For any of you who are burden bearers, you may have found yourselves overwhelmed with grief um, just over our news cycles. And for those of you who don't identify as burden bearers, it was just a tough week to watch and listen to the news. Jesus's work on the cross was about co-suffering love. And I believe we are being invited to co-suffering love at the communion table this morning. Sympathy and compassion are more than feeling bad and sad for someone else. You are actually suffering alongside another in solidarity. Empathy and sympathy, compassion, each of those endings means suffering. M, sim, and calm all mean with. This implies that we bear one another's burdens together in our withness. So this is, this is a central reason that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus assumed human form and the human condition, including death on the cross, as the ultimate expression of co-suffering love. He's experienced our limitations and testings and knows how we suffer. There's a beautiful mystery in communion because in receiving communion, we are participating in Jesus's co-suffering love, not just for ourselves, but for the life of the world. Co-suffering love has the power to heal and transform. And I don't know how that mystery of love works, but I do believe that Jesus understood what he was inviting us into. This morning, as we receive the elements, I sense we're being invited to co-suffer with the world around us. That as we do this in remembrance of Jesus, we are bringing the families who have lost their children this week with us. That as we eat the bread, 
We are co-suffering with the families in Ukraine that have been torn apart, those who have died and those who are fleeing with their lives. We co-suffer with our Indigenous siblings as their grief continues and they continue to wait for true justice. And as we drink the wine, we co-suffer in solidarity with families and friends who have lost loved ones for no other reason than someone hating the color of their skin. We mourn with the millions of people who have lost loved ones through this pandemic. It is in our witness that we will join in Jesus's co-suffering love. So we don't need to be afraid of the darkness. With Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of the sadness. We will not be afraid to quietly sit with Jesus beside those who cry and join in their sorrow because co-suffering is an essential manifestation of how we follow Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us. And this is what our communion together is about this morning. At the Last Supper, Jesus fed his disciples and in essence invited them to join in with him in co-suffering love. And this morning, Jesus invites you to that same co-suffering love. So Jesus, thank you for your co-suffering love. Help us, help us to feel your witness with us and show us how to co-suffer in love with others. Amen. Eat and drink in remembrance of him. I hope that you can go into this week feeling Jesus's witness in the midst of some really uh, burdening sort of world events. And, um, and when you feel the burden of co-suffering, ask Jesus how you might, he might like to um, have you express your willingness to co-suffer. I'm just going to pray for Sarah now. Uh, 
as she brings us the message. Jesus, thank you so much for Sarah. What a gift she is in our midst. And we know that she not only knows how to suffer, uh, because she does on a daily basis, but she also knows how to co-suffer with those around. Thank you that what she shares is not just uh, head knowledge, but that it comes from her heart. Uh, give us hearts that would be open to hearing it. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, going back to our poll, what do you think Jesus was? Introvert? Extrovert? Ambivert? I love that word. Um, we could run another poll, but we won't. You can just think about it. I think we could probably argue all of those things from all different directions. But you know what, really, it doesn't really matter. In the grand scheme of things, neither is better. They're just who we are. And deep down, that is beautiful. So whether Jesus was introvert or extrovert or both, Jesus was fully human, as he expects us to be as well. The story today sees a really human Jesus, and I love him all the more for seeing this side of him. So I hope that you hear his humanness in uh, this morning's message. So having posed the question of you, I should probably answer it myself. I actually, because I'd set the poll, I wasn't able to vote. So I was a bit disappointed. I, 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 I can't. I'm just seeing the results. Um, so anyway, I am definitely way more introvert than extrovert. I don't actually need people that much. Truth be told, I am 51 years happily single. Uh, although I suppose I should only really start counting at the age of 13. So let's say I'm 38 years happily single. Um, I once spent a, a three week holiday with a friend of mine who was so mad at me by the end of week one. I couldn't figure out why she was so mad at me. And it was because I didn't speak. I'm on holiday. I can just chill. She's like, I need you to talk to me. Like, oh, oh, OK. That's how that works. Um, so if you want a listener, I am absolutely your person. I am really good at asking questions and then just letting you talk. I am very happy to be there for you until I need to recharge. There's the introvert. Um, but there are occasions that I do need people. And then I am not afraid to ask for help. I was texting back and forward with somebody this week who was marveling at my ability to ask anyone for anything. Um, and I figure the person that I'm asking has the ability to say no or they should have and there is no harm in asking ever I reckon um, and if the person that I am asking hasn't learned how to say no yet then maybe me asking them will help them learn that skill so uh, this is a top tip for all of you by the way when you, I ask you to do something when I ask you to volunteer for something or help in some way I'm expecting you to be responsible for your own answer and I'm okay with your no I'd love you yes which is why I'm asking, but I'm okay with your no. And I never take it personally. So feel free to say no to me. I'd love you to say yes, but feel free to say no. So are you an asker for help or a do it myself kind of person? I love that we are all different. Variety makes us quite fascinating. But when push comes to shove, we all sometimes need help. So that was the, uh, the round table question. Who do you turn to? Thanks for those of you who answered. Um, but uh, for others of you, just think about it. Who are your people? Just think about who your community is. Jesus also had those people. 
the three people in this story today were a kind of refuge for him. They were a place of rest in his nomadic trekking. They were people that he kept popping back into. There was also James and John and Peter. They were his go-to guys. Um, and we saw them in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Easter. But these three are another kind of port in the storm for Jesus. They're the place that he goes back to. So just thinking about your people and your community, let's just pause for a second and just quietly thank God for them because they are a gift to you. So I'm just gonna for a second. God, I thank you for those people. I thank you for our community. I thank you for the people around us individually and as a whole. Thank you for the gift that they are, that you've given to us. Amen. So as much of an introvert as I am, the older I get, the more I feel like life is a team sport. Um, in a team, there are lots of different roles. I watched a really ridiculous movie this week and I wouldn't recommend it. This is not a plug for a movie. This is a you know, it's called Senior Year, and uh, it's terrible. It's a terrible movie. Like, you know, I would give it two out of five stars, if I'm being generous. But in there's one moment where uh, her, the character's friend, um, she's on the team. Like, she's like, why haven't you got your team jacket on? And her team jacket is, like, um, managing the equipment. Right? Everybody has a role. There are all kinds of different roles. Okay, please don't take that as an advantage, as a, as a recommendation of a movie. Just save yourself the hour and 50. Um, but anyway, we are all connected. Everybody has a different role to play. What we do affects each other. How we live affects others. What they do affects us. And wider than that even, what we do affects the planet. We are all connected. I can't think of anything that I do that doesn't have some effect on the planet or other people. From brushing my teeth and remembering to turn the water off so that I'm helping save the fish to everything else. I don't, somebody told me once that if you turn the water off while you're brushing your teeth, you save the fish. I don't know why that, but it stuck with me. So I always do. But everything, uh, everything we do is connected. Life is a team sport. So in the Bible passage I'm going to look at today, it's mourning that's actually a team sport. It's grief and very much a community participation event. And we're going to look at how this community mourned together and how Jesus stepped into it with them. If you think about your culture, I was going to say my culture or our culture, but I'm going to, that was presuming that your culture is the same as my culture, which it probably isn't. Um, but um, so if you think about your own culture, is mourning a private affair or a community event? Well, perhaps it varies depending on the scale of it or the public's or private nature of the loss in the grand scheme of things. Well, in Jesus's culture, it was very much a community event. In his culture, there was and still is the practice of sitting Shiva, it's called S-H-I-V-A, literally sitting and mourning for seven days past the burial of the deceased. Other people from the community would come and sit Shiva with the family of the deceased. And, and rather than bringing flowers, as we tend to, they would bring food to save the family from the mundane task of providing food during that time. Mourning was a community event in Jesus's culture, and in many communities and cultures, it's still very much a whole community job. These last weeks, like Eden just said, during communion, we have seen evidence of mourning in community. 
We've marked a year since the exposure of the unmarked graves of too many little children in Kamloops. More than none is too many in my book. This has been a year of mourning in the indigenous community. And this week, that community and the extended community came together to remember and to honor the children who didn't come home. Then south of the border, we've been shocked and appalled by mass shootings in the everyday places, a grocery store, an elementary school, to name just two mass murder events. We call them mass shootings. I think if we called them mass murders, we might actually see what they really are. But the community gathered to mourn. We saw then images of people coming together, laying flowers and remembrance things and coming together and people being all together in one space and just standing around supporting each other, taking solace from just being together. We have, as the whole world, been wringing our hands watching the onslaught of the Russian army in Ukraine. Not to mention, we are all still reeling from two years of pandemic bonkersness. And there are more situations, but that's plenty enough to make my point. Life, and particularly death, is happening to all of us, be that close by or far away, directly and in more indirect ways. If it happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. It's just sometimes we're a bit numb to it. Murder, death and destruction is coming at us daily, and collectively we mourn because we are connected. Richard Raw um, wrote this, the root of violence is the illusion of separation, of separation from God, from being itself, and from being with everyone and everything. When we don't know that we are connected, we will invariably resort to some sort of violence to get the dignity and power that we lack. It's like, ooh, that's good. Violence occurs when we don't know that we're connected, when we forget that the person in front of us is flesh and blood that belongs to us. Mourning as a community happens when we remember that we are connected. We should mourn. It's proper and it's right that we do. And I'm going to share a few things that we can do with our pain together or maybe on our own. But first, I want us to read the story from Jesus today and just see him step into the story with them and help us to understand that he steps into our story too. That he steps in with us is the comfort of incarnation. God with us makes all the difference in the world. If there wasn't God with us, I think I'm just going to pack up and go home. Oh, wait, I'm home. You know what I mean? God with us makes all the difference. This is the last week in the Easter series. Next Sunday is Pentecost, which counts 50 days from Easter Sunday. And it marks the event when the Holy Spirit came big time on the followers of Jesus and the church is launched. But this week we're still waiting. We're still in that kind of not quite there yet. Um, and this is a story that once again demonstrates death and resurrection and points us to Jesus's saving action. So the story for today, I'm going to tell you the first part, then read the second part from the text. Um, because the, the text in the lectionary kind of gives you the middle portion of the story and it's like starting like, and the dog jumped off the boat. And I, what? I don't know what happened. So I'm going to have to tell you the backstory so that we can get to the whole story. So Jesus had good friends. Some of them followed him and others he visited in their homes and spent time with away from the eyes of the watching crowds. Today is about a family who did both. They followed him and he visited them at their house often. These three were close friends of Jesus. One day, the brother in the family, Lazarus, got sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, sent a message to Jesus, who was in a nearby town, to tell him that Lazarus was ill. 
I guess that they expected him to drop everything and come and heal Lazarus because he loved him. I would have expected that of Jesus too. They had seen him do this repeatedly for other people. Surely he would come through for them. But Jesus didn't go straight away. He had other things to do. And from the conversation with his closest disciples, it seems he had something to show them through all of this that would help them with coming with his coming death. But they don't know the end of the story. And the disciples are left wondering why they aren't dropping everything and going to the sisters. And they're left waiting and the sisters are left waiting for Jesus to come, watching often down the road to see if they could see his crowd approaching. I can hear their prayer. How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Like, I can hear them like, come on. If they'd had a a phone, they'd have been texting. Are you coming? Have you left yet? Any time now? Still waiting? Capital letters. Like, they'd have been getting bonkers with him. As I've said that word too many times, if I hear me that again, just censor me. Um, As they were waiting, their brother Lazarus got sicker and sicker and died. Jesus had not come in time. The sisters and everyone in the town were devastated. They washed Lazarus's body, dressed him in spices and strips of white linen for the grave and put him in a tomb, as was their custom. They rolled a stone over the tomb entrance and the whole town came to Mary and Martha to mourn with them. And then, when there was nothing left to be done, when the morning was in full Shiva, everyone sitting and weeping, Jesus finally heads for Bethany. Too freaking late, Jesus. Well, that's what Mary and Martha thought. But even though he was too late to heal Lazarus, Martha hadn't given up hope of the rabbi coming to mourn with them. Mourning is a community action. So she was watching every day for him. And when she saw the crowd approaching, she went out of the town to meet Jesus on the road. Rabbi, she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will be raised up. Martha answered, not thinking about literally right now, but thinking about the future. I know he'll be raised up at the resurrection at the end of time. And Jesus said to her, you don't have to wait for the end, Martha. I am right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Rabbi, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After saying this, uh, Martha went home and whispered in Mary's ear, telling her to go out and see Jesus. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and ran to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him out on the road. Some Jews who'd been comforting Mary in the house noticed how quickly she got up and went out with her, thinking that she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. But instead of going to the tomb, she went out of the town to where Jesus was waiting. When she reached him, Mary fell down at his feet and said, Rabbi, I wish you had been here. Then my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews who had come along with her crying as well. His spirit became very sad and he was troubled. Some say deep anger welled up within him. Where have you put him? He asked. Come see, Lord, they replied. Now Jesus wept with them. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. 
But some of them said, he opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying if he loved him so much? Once more, Jesus felt very sad. The anger again welling up within him. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone in front of the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there is a bad smell. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see God's glory? So they took away the stone. I imagine at this point, everybody's sort of taking a step back. And that's got a smell. And touching a dead body would make them unclean. And the smell of the stench of death must have been atrocious. Then Jesus looked up. I mean, the smell is still coming out of the tomb. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. I said it so they would believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen. A cloth was around his face. Okay, I have to do an action right now. I have to show you what this looked like. You have to imagine, right? His feet are tied together. His hands are tied. He's got a thing over his. He must have just been following the sound of Jesus' voice. Because, like, is how he came out. Like, there's no, like... There's this going on. How is he going to get there? Anyway, um, Lazarus came out and Jesus said to them, I need a little bit of help. Take off the clothes he was buried in and let him go home. Postscript, not included in the text for today. It says this was a turning point for many of the Jews who were with Mary at the time. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. We got some, said Jesus. But some went to the Pharisees and told on Jesus, which led to meetings to figure out what to do with this man who kept on creating God's science. End of the story. The resurrection of Lazarus is included in John's gospel because it's a picture of what is to come. It foreshadows Jesus's own resurrection. There are details in this telling that should make us think of what happens to Jesus. There's the stone in front of the tomb, and there's the question that Jesus asks, where have you laid him? These are like echoes of the future. We're in John 11 right now, but in John 19, Jesus is placed in a tomb and a stone is maneuvered to seal his body in. And then in John 20, just the next chapter on Resurrection Sunday, Mary is distraught because she can't find Jesus's body. And she asks the gardener who, plot twist, is actually Jesus himself, where they have laid him. The very question that he had asked back in John 11. So this is one take we could take from the passage today, but I want to look at the idea that I said from the beginning that mourning happens in community and Jesus gets right in there with them and with us. Mary, Martha and Lazarus are Jewish followers of Jesus. They are part of a community in Bethany. Their neighbours and extended kin are Jewish and we see them all there comforting Mary and Martha together. We in the Christian world have been guilty of giving our Jewish brothers and sisters a hard time. I don't know why we've done that. Maybe it's because they didn't all recognize Jesus and we feel superior. Maybe we feel they're responsible for putting him to death, but we have been brutally unfair. Many of them have followed him and many others are just purely being faithful to what they believe to be true about God. And who can blame them for that? This story recognizes the kindness of this community and sees them weeping with the sisters. 
this shows their strong ties. And although this family unit has started following and become close friends of this rabbi, they are still very much part of that community. We are all connected. It was true then, and it's still true today. So the community is there, all sharing in the pain of the loss together, and then enter the rabbi, or, the, or, or rather, not enter the rabbi, because he's off stage left in another town doing other stuff. And he gets word that Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is a good friend. Why didn't he go straight away? Why is Jesus slow to answer their prayer? Good question. Why is Jesus slow to answer any prayer? I actually have no good answer to that. Just the question. Why is Jesus slow to answer prayer? And here's another. When he does, why does he not always give us the answer that we want? And does that mean that we shouldn't bother him? Should Mary and Martha not have bothered him? No, I think we should bother him. And he's okay with it. Bother him all you like. Send word like Mary and Martha did, and then watch for him to come. And then watch for him to come. And then when you think it's too late, keep watching for him to come. The uh, future telling that John does of Jesus's own death in the story and his grieving for and with his friends just emphasizes his humanity and mortality. Jesus was a man acquainted with grief. But at the same time, he's also fully God. He is God-born. Listen to the passage from Peter's first letter, which is uh, 1 Peter 1, 3, if you want to read along. Um, it says this, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. I wonder if that's how Lazarus felt as they unwrapped him. And I imagine if the unwrapping was a little bit less uh, reverent than the thing that they did when they wrapped him in the first place. I wonder if they were all like, let's quickly get these things off him. I imagine once they all realized what had happened, that everyone got in there to take, tear the grave clothes off of Lazarus. Mourning happened in community and restoration happened in community too. I wonder if as they spun him around, can you imagine like pulling that first bit of uh, linen cloth and, just, and he's just like, like a top. I wonder if he was thinking, I've been given a brand new life. I've got everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over me and the future. The day is coming when you're going to have it too. Life healed and whole. This brand new life is our inheritance and the source of our hope as we live in a time where we cannot see Jesus is what uh, Wilder Gaffney wrote. So uh, 1 Peter 1 keeps going. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. You never saw him, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him with laughter and singing. Because you kept on believing you'll get what you're looking forward to, total salvation. This is good stuff. This is future hope. But what about today? What about the aggravation in the meantime? What about the suffering? I have a few suggestions of things that we could do as we sit with the heavy of the world and as we sit together. 
Some of it we can do um, collectively. Some of it is a more solitary activity, but all of it can be done with Jesus, who weeps with you and me, like he wept with Mary, Martha and the townsfolk. Um, I want to tell you that I have stolen these ideas from a lady called Lisa Hall, who's a Canadian woman. Um, she's an anti-bias facilitator and mental wellness advocate. And it was so good. I was like, why would I reinvent the wheel? Hers are awesome. So I'm going to steal her ideas. These are her very practical tips for those of us who find ourselves up to our necks in it. And which if we're aware of our connectedness to everyone through our humanity and the spirit of God means all of us. So tip one, journal. Get your feelings out on paper. I feel like I say this every time I speak, but that's because it really saves my life. Writing it down longhand with a pen gets it out of my head and my heart in a way that typing or speaking doesn't. This may be just me and my introvert ways. Those of you who'd rather talk to someone, fear not, your tip is coming. So first tip, journal. Tip two, create something beautiful. This reminds us that even in the midst of evil, humanity can create beauty. It's like going in the opposite spirit. Like everything is dire, let's do something lovely. There are many, many options here, from creating a safe and cozy space to creating a work of art, a song, a dance, words crafted into poetry, sculpture, gardens, flower beds, window boxes, public works of art, whatever it is, create something beautiful. Uh, tip three, amplify the helpers. Share the actions of those near the event who are providing help. It kind of helps us feel better to know that there's somebody helping. So tell their stories um, and look for the helpers. I think Mr. Rogers said that, so it's gotta be good advice. Uh, tip four, do something fun. That sounds like, mm, I don't know if I should. Like, isn't everything terrible right now? Yes, which is probably why you should. Play helps to activate our imagination so we can approach problems more creatively. Save the Children does this thing where they, um, they set up play spaces for children in refugee camps. For children who have been displaced, um, many of them alone, usually for horrific reasons and they give children a safe space to play. I think it's a genius idea. It's what the children need. And if children need it, we're just big children. Older anyway, but we need to play too. So what is fun for you? My fun is in creating something beautiful, but what's yours? Maybe we can talk about that in the Q and R in a minute or two. Okay, tip five. Talk to someone, reach out to a friend or a therapist or process within community. You are not alone. I'll just say that again, talk to someone. And tip six, cry. Discharge trapped grief through your tears. And if you don't wanna cry alone, cry with somebody else. If you need help making tears fall, try listening to a sad song or watching a sad movie. I actually find happy movies make me cry more, but whatever it is that makes you cry, do it. I'm just a bit odd. But uh, I find also the bath or the shower helps me cry. There's something about maybe already being in water that makes the tears fall easier. And bonus tip, get out into nature, hug a tree, 
walk barefoot on the grass, listen to the birds. There's birds out here singing right now. Nature heals us. Touching the ground literally grounds us. And then Lisa's final thought is this. Doing these things doesn't mean that you're trying to escape or ignore reality. Instead, you do these things to find balance and to help those around you find balance. We do these things to find a way through because we do need to move through whatever it is that we're grieving eventually. Mary and Martha were finding a way through their grief in the presence of their community and Jesus came and joined them in it and he wept with them. He came to them at their saddest moment and he was sad with them. And I love that about him. He wasn't all, just feel better. I'm gonna fix it, it's fine. Guys, just settle down. He wasn't all, have hope. He just demonstrated, I get it. I'm here, I'm with you. This sucks. And I love that about Jesus. So if you are in the depths of it, he is with you. If you are sitting Shiva with somebody else, he comes to join you all in it. If you feel like you're carrying the weight of the world, just know that you don't carry it alone. There are the shoulders of those standing beside you and Jesus comes to help shoulder that burden too. So let's just pray. Come Jesus, weep with us. Come, be with those who are numb and bring us to life. Come, be with those who weep for ourselves. Be with us, Jesus. Come, be with those who sit, with those who weep. Be with us all. Come, Jesus, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Jesus. Come. So, as we get to Q&R this morning, I wonder if we might help each other. I wonder if you have ways that you've found to discharge your grief or work it through that might help someone else who's in the depths of it. The six tips that I shared were to journal, create something beautiful, amplify the helpers, do something fun, talk to someone, and cry. And I'm just wondering, do you have any other suggestions or examples that you want to share of times when that's worked and helped you get through? And the people said amen and moved to gallery setting so that we could see each other.